Hello, welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that applauds Daniel Hannan for noticing that it's not working out the way he thought. Or to put it another way, it's God's own balls up. It's been a whirlwind week of chaos, disillusionment, millibands and pork-based controversy. With me to pick up the pieces are two of my regular co-hosts. Peter Collins is the Sorcerer Supreme of Brexitology. How are you, Peter? I'm fine. And if you're admiring my smoky eye effect, I'm wearing <laughs> Max Fack eyeliner, which was a present from Michael Gove. <laughs> It's very nice. It's a shame you can't see it, listeners. And Roz Taylor is Research Manager at the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission at the LSE. Welcome back, Roz. How are you? I'm much better, thanks. I've been uh, away for a few weeks. I've been having my own personal uh, withdrawal. I think we can all agree on this podcast that none of us really enjoys withdrawal, per se. And I can tell you that this particular withdrawal from prescription drug I certainly didn't enjoy. It's great to be back. Oh, it's really nice to have you. Our special guest this week is Dr. Mikola Benson of Goldsmiths University of London. She's a sociologist who leads the research project Brexpat, which investigates the effects of Brexit on British citizens who live in the EU27. Hi, Mikola. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for inviting me in. <laughs> I'm guessing these effects, uh, as you found out, are less than brilliant. Uh, yes, I have recently come back from a trip to France, uh, where I've been talking Brexit with British people who who live there um, in the southwest, in particular. And I think it's fair to say that, for the most part, people are very concerned and anxious. Have you found any uh, Brexit enthusiasts living in the EU who are just uh, they think it's going to be fine? That's always the question. And yes, we have. Um, I have spoken to a few in France. I have to say that among the people who've come forward to take part in the research in France, they are few and far between the levers. Um, and my colleague Karen, who's been down in Spain, uh, where she's historically done work, has come across a fair number of them as well. So I think always in a case like this, we are going to find people who, you know, contrary to popular belief, people don't always vote in their own interests. Um, <laughs> so I think it's it's quite understandable that we would come across people who have settled in the EU who might not necessarily be the strongest proponents for the EU. How do they square that circle in their minds? Um, I think that there are various ways in which they square it. Uh, some of them are very highly educated about what the EU has ever done. Um, and are very, very critical of the EU, as, as are a lot of Remainers. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is certainly something that they share in common, is recognising some of the flaws of the European Union. Um, there are also, of course, um, people who believe that they're going to be perfectly OK, um, and so the personal effects might not, might not impact on them. So I think that there's a difference between ideology and the kind of pra more practical dimensions of thinking about what this means for their lives. So Yeah. Well, let's hope that they're not unpleasantly surprised. We'll be talking to Mikla more throughout the show and she'll be helping us with this week's plus-size news belt. But first, here's Peter with the messages. If you like your remoning in physical form, then good news. Romaniacs will be headlining the Stoke Newington Literary Festival on Sunday, the 3rd of June. We'll be doing a show with special guest Martin Rosen, the Guardian's eyeball-popping political cartoonist, and there'll be drinks afterwards, so I think you have to pay for them, plus exclusive merchandise on sale. Tickets are going fast and they're available at stokenewingtonliteraryfestival.com. That's Sunday, 3rd of June at 6pm. And if you can't make it to Stoke Newington, then remember you can always support Romaniacs via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Pledge is a few pounds every month and you'll get smart mugs, t-shirts, bags and a priceless sense of being on the right side of history. Not to mention first dibs on tickets for our live shows. Go to patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast to find out more. Thanks, Peter. Now for the news. So much news. 
First up, David Miliband, The Second Coming. This week, the centrist messiah walked upon the waters of the Atlantic to return and save us from the mortal sin of a hard Brexit. Miliband accused Jeremy Corbyn of acting as the midwife of a hard Brexit over his refusal to support this idea, also known as the Norway option, because Norway is the largest member of the EEA. The same day, Corbyn had a meeting with his backbenchers in which he supposedly said no way to Norway, ruling out EEA membership because it means accepting free movement to people and having to obey a lot of EU rules without having a vote on them. Yet, his Brexit spokesman Keir Starmer has been talking about both staying in the customs union and maintaining what he called a strong single market relationship that hardwires the benefits of the single market into the future agreement. So that sounds like staying in the single market but calling it something else. Um, Labour policy is is an endless source of confusion and frustration here. Um, any any serious change here? Well, I, I, it's interesting that the headlines of, of the meeting that Corbyn had with the backbenchers were from the sort of party spokesman, the people close to him, saying, no, he's absolutely been clear, no EEA. Uh, whereas uh, some people, uh, some, some backbenchers, told anonymously the press afterwards that actually he didn't sound quite so definitive. So I'm just wondering if there may be an element of some of uh, Corbyn's spin doctors putting their own personal spin on it. And I do believe there is a quite Brexity senior spokesman, I'm forgetting his name now, his daddy used to own the BBC. Um, <laughs> oh, it's it gone. Is. This, is, this is the great, the great problem with when we're told what Corbyn's spokesman said, when you know it's Seamus Mill and you know what Seamus Milne thinks... Uh, and you know that Corbyn isn't going to argue if Seamus Milne gives it a particular spin. So it, it, it never really sort of clears things up. No. I mean, pre- presumably um, that he was he was smart enough not to be absolutely, utterly categorical, even in a closed meeting, because closed meetings and lots of politicians tend to leak. I mean, you know... Assuming he's still his eye is still on the prize of becoming prime minister rather than stopping Brexit, um, he's presumably thinking, "Well, I'm going to keep my powder dry a little bit longer," and sounded just a bit negative for now. Purveyor of quality bullshit Dan Hodges tweeted, "How much longer Remain is going to cling to the fiction Jeremy Corbyn is one of them?" But nobody still thinks this, do they? I mean, he, he's obviously a Benite Eurosceptic who'll need to be dragged over the line by pressure from Labour's overwhelmingly Remainy voters in the latest poll, sixty-nine percent. Uh, opposed Brexit with only 23% supporting. I mean, is, is, does anyone on the Remain side still think that Corbyn is uh, is with them? Um, I think probably not, no. Um, I wonder, perhaps a little optimistically, if um, he is indeed keeping his powder dry until the Cabinet decides between the two um, different forms of customs partnership, which the uh, EU has already rejected, the Commission has already rejected, but which they nonetheless are having to decide between. And once they do, and the European Commission presumably rejects them again, he might say, oh, well, it looks like we won't get the deal that we wanted from the EU. So I'm going to be pragmatic and we can we can stay in the single market. Maybe that will happen. I don't know. What do you reckon? What are the chances? I don't think he wants to. No, I don't think he wants to, but he wants. He would like but he to. he may still do it. You know, be in power. Uh. Now, EEA membership means being in the single market, making some contribution to the EU budget, following many of the EU's rules, being out of the common agriculture and fisheries policies, and having some freedom to strike our own trade deals, because in itself being in the EEA does not mean staying in the customs union. Um, now, one big criticism is that if you're going to do all of that, you might as well just stay in the EU. So as Remainers, do we... I mean, obviously, this is better than hard Brexit, but and I think this came up, Ian brought this up uh, last week when we were talking about actually, you know, when it comes down to it, if there's a very soft Brexit option on the table, should remain as back it or insist on sort of, you know, on, on sort of stopping Brexit altogether? 
Is it a case of baby steps? I mean, I don't think many people thought that there would be a sudden tidal wave of you know, change in public opinion. Is it a, 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 a case of gradually stepping away from Brexit um, and gradually realising that, no, this bit doesn't work, that's not going to work, not being in this isn't going to work, and eventually a kind of messy end to the whole process that means we don't Brexit. That, that's optimistically, that's what I, I hope for. Again, I've been quite optimistic this week, I realise. Um, but uh, I think there are objections uh, to staying in the EEA, based on, which are mostly based around sovereignty and the problem of being a rule taker and having to suck it up and not having a say in the rules. Um, those are very important to Brexiters. The question is, should that be just as important to uh, Remainers if we can save jobs and you know, salvage something from this mess? I think personally we should try and be pragmatic. It seems to me that the news agenda flips from side to side. You know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the people's vote, the idea of having a referendum on the actual facts in which we have the option of staying in the EU. That's what we, as Remainers, I think, really want. It happens that this week everyone's talking about the EEA, which is not our first choice, but it would be less bad than a hard Brexit. I think as long as we make it clear that, you know, we want we, we want the least worst option that we can possibly get, mm. and there's not there's no contradiction in that, as Ian's pointed out before, you can have a plan A and a backup plan B. There's nothing embarrassing about that. And what we then do, therefore, is see what's in the news this week and argue for what seems the best option of what's in the news this week. And hopefully people vote will be back on the news agenda next week yeah, yeah and and Michaela, what um difference does the eea option make uh to to brits in europe does that seem like a, a real lifeline for them well i wouldn't i think thinking about what happens currently in respect to the agreements between the eea and and um, eu nation states and the uk indeed in terms of uh, free movement the EEA nationals are, are in the UK on very similar terms to, to EU nationals. And certainly were that to be part of, of an arrangement where we become, you know, EEA members, um, then this would undoubtedly change the game for UK citizens who've made their homes and lives in the EU 27 because it would maintain their right to be where they are on the same terms as they are currently. And it would also mean, and, and this is a problem with the citizens' rights negotiations in respect to British citizens, anyone arriving after our transition would also be covered. So it is a massive game changer potentially if that does go forward, and I say if with, a, with very capital letters, um, although it does also mean that for the last however long they've been negotiating the citizens' rights agreements and having those written into the draft um, withdrawal agreement, they've, they've spent a lot of time keeping people in, in limbo, um, both UK citizens living in the EU27 and EU nationals living here. So, you know, all of that, oh, well, you know, well, we're sorry, we probably should have thought of this sooner. Yeah, <laughs> which, which will be the epitaph for yeah, Brexit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Peter, is, is Norway friendly, feeling friendlier about this uh, option? It appears so. I mean, up to now, the, the, the noise coming from Norway has been as cool as a fjord in winter about Britain joining the EEA, because, of course, at the moment, Norway's the biggest member of the EEA. Um, the way the Norwegian see it is that it's allowed them to run their own agriculture and fisheries policy. And the worry is that if Britain comes in and becomes the dominant member, Britain might start kind of leading 
some sort of softening of that in that right in the negotiations. Uh, however, uh, Norway's Prime Minister Erna Solberg told the FT a few days ago in an interview that actually they're OK about Britain joining uh, and arguing arguing the case, saying it will give the EEA more clout when it comes to argue with the EU about rules and also safeguard Norway's access to the British market. And, and Britain is Norway's biggest market. So, ah. important. For fish? Uh, uh, gas mostly, but oh, fish and other stuff too. But ga- gas is the thing that makes it. We import a lot of Norwegian gas. Of course. But presumably, if Britain did take this option, it would become, in future, the Britain option. Indeed, yes. And, um, yes. and Norway would no longer have the Norway option. Some people, Brexiters who like have a sense of history or should remember the time when Britain and Norway were the same kingdom, weren't they, at one point in, in ancient times? Same <laughs> I think they were before William the Conqueror at one point. Yes, very important. <laughs> for, for my time, Peter. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Quickly Googles it. Um, now, what what effect do we think David Miliband's ret- return will have? I mean, and I think we we've talked before about this kind of absurdly overblown image of him as the uh, as the sort of centrist superhero who's going to give up his. Uh, his very prestigious and very important and probably fulfilling job in America. Um, to come back and, I don't know, start a kind of new centrist jamboree. Um, And there was also criticism, I noticed, of him going, what right does he have to talk about Brexit? By people who seem to think that he's literally become an American. Well, um, it it seems to me it depends what he does. You know, if he comes over, makes a few nice, nice speeches and then buggers off back to his cushy job in America, then he won't have much impact. But if he says, right, I'm coming back now, I'm going to stand for a Labour nomination for the next suitable by-election that comes along. I'm going to get myself elected to Parliament again, organise all the centrists and Yabu sucks to you, Jeremy Corbyn, and I'm going to do something. And you're, you're, I can see you're laughing as, <laughs> as I describe I this wouldn't, if scenario. I were, if I were him, I would not do that. No, and, and, but you know, if, he, if he wants to have some impact and he wants to have, you know, if he thinks he's a great man of history, this is what he should do. Come back to Parliament and do something. Yeah, I wouldn't. The thing is, it's not like he's, it's not like he's sort of sitting on his hands. He does have a really serious job, which sort of changes people's lives, which Mm. is probably more fun than becoming an MP and losing to Jeremy Corbyn. I think you're right about that bit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, the continuing paralysis on the government side over Britain's future relationship with the European Customs Union. Theresa May's cabinet is squabbling over two unworkable proposals that have both been rejected by the EU. Uh, First, there's the crazy option, as Boris Johnson has dubbed it, of having a customs partnership in which Britain collects tariffs on behalf of the EU on goods that will eventually be sent on. Second, there's the batshit insane option, as we have dubbed it, of maximum facilitation or maxfac for women, in which some combination of digital technology and magical stardust means that goods can be checked as they cross borders without there being any border checks. And yet the government is promising a white paper by next month in which it will set out a detailed, ambitious and precise explanation of what it wants the final Brexit deal to deliver, including proposals on customs. How likely does this seem when the cabinet doesn't seem to be able to agree? White paper, schmite paper, you know, it's a white paper. Frankly, you can say whatever you like. I mean, it's easy to obfuscate and come up with uh, ideal solutions in a white paper. I'm not hopeful that this will tell us anything more um, because, as you've said, the only two options that they're even thinking about have both already been rejected. Um, Max fact by its very nature cannot be fixed until new technology is invented, which I'm not sure it's about to be um, imminently. And um, it's not... I don't think that this will um, really change much at all. 
It reminds me of the um, the position papers we got at the end of last summer on customs and foreign affairs and so on. They were given this great big build-up. This is going to be the government's position on Brexit. And you read them and they were just acres of empty waffle. Remember, there was one thing <coughs> that just repeated the same stuff for another page, just to fill out another page. And, you know, vague We've all done it. <laughs> on deadline. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it just didn't it just didn't have any impact. It just was it landed with a dull thud. And presumably, that's the risk now. Although, presumably, Theresa May is hoping it will concentrate minds and make everybody suddenly reach agreement. Um, Mogg has called for a no-deal Brexit if the EU rejects whichever customs option Britain proposes. Uh, is he sort of helping our cause by making it impossible for Theresa May to reach a decision and therefore makes way for Parliament to decide and most likely choose a softer option? Is, is Mogg a stealth Remainer? I keep thinking he's, going to help, he's helping our cause because he's just pushing it so far and then everybody... You know, and then it just carries on being the hardest of Brexits. Um, so I must be wrong. Uh, clearly, there have been concessions that he has had to swallow, like you know, paying large amounts of the budget into the budget, uh, the EU. Uh, but um, fundamentally, he his presence just seems to keep Theresa May. Um, powerless essentially and she seems to be continue uh, can still be at his mercy and I'm not uh, confident that one day he will go too far because he's already gone too far way too far <laughs> his whole thing is going too far yeah his, whole his thing very is existence too is too far for yeah. me but what I'm wondering about maybe one of you will have the answer to this why isn't Theresa May already saying to Rhys Marg and Johnson and Gove look uh, you either agree my customs plan or we all fail, it goes to Parliament, and Parliament chooses to stay in the customs union, and you won't like that, will you? Why isn't she saying that? Why isn't she saying it openly? Because she has an enormous sense of duty. I think this is the way to understand Theresa May. She feels she must get Brexit through in as relatively painless way as possible, and that means her being in charge, because she knows what a disaster it would be for the country if Mogg took over or Boris took over. And for her to stay in charge, she regards that, I think, as a, an absolute necessity for the country not to go completely tits up. There we go. We did say something positive about Theresa May this week. <laughs> Exclusive. <laughs> Bookmark that one. Um, faded megamind Daniel Hannan has been lamenting on the Conservative home website that Brexit isn't the kind of groovy, consensual, Swiss-style deal that he had in mind. And it turns out that what he wants is not far off what David Miliband has just called for. Staying in the single market through the EEA, though not staying in the customs union. And apparently the reason this isn't happening is our fault. He wrote, you broke it, you own it, say some Remainers whenever anyone complains about the way things are developing. But we, we liberal leavers, don't own it. The process is largely owned, rather, by people who resent that it is happening at all. So it's nothing to do with him and people like him, but people who have no power over the negotiations. So I think we'd like to apologise to Daniel Hannan <laughs> on behalf of this podcast for, um, for obstructing the, the wonderful, lovely Brexit that, that he had in mind. Well, I'm baffled. So, so he's an arch Brexiter, and he wants us to stay in the single markets in the EEA. Does Rhys Mogg go? Do they know this? I mean, you know, they're not divided, are they, by any chance? His whole thing seems to have been like, you know, to recognise the narrowness of the results and push and, and basically push forward a kind of soft Brexit that everyone could agree on. Yeah. And now the reason this hasn't happened is because of us. <laughs> Surreal. Um, and John Elledge, who was going to be a future guest on the podcast, wrote a fantastic uh, piece in the New Statesman. Uh, basically saying it is not enough to blame your opponents for the world's failure to live up to your fantasies about it. But I won't stop him. <laughs> I won't stop him at all. Oh, clever old Daniel Hannan. Our third topic. Uh, there was a brief chorus of harumphing on the right as the UN's rapporteur on racism 
published a report saying that Brexit had contributed to an environment in which explicit racial, ethnic and religious intolerance have grown in acceptability. Professor Tendai Achume said the discourses on racial equality before, during and after the 2016 referendum, as well as the policies and practices upon which the Brexit debate has conferred legitimacy, raise serious issues at the core of my mandate. Many with whom I consulted highlighted the growth in volume and acceptability of xenophobic discourses on migration and on foreign nationals, including refugees in social and print media. Big news, but it was drowned in a sea of outrage among ruddy-cheeked middle-aged Brexiters over Corbynite's use of the term gammon to describe them. Several people argued that this was racist, not just gammons, but even Toby Perkins, a pro-Remain Labour MP, who then had a Twitter fight about it with Corbyn Tribune Matt Zarb Cousins. So we should, I suppose, I mean, on the one hand, I do understand people on Twitter saying that we shouldn't even be talking about this, but a lot of people are talking about it, and I think it perhaps... Uh, you know, does get to sort of some interesting sort of truths about the the debate and the um, the state of the country. Firstly, who is a gammon? Who wants to explain what a gammon is? I nominate Ros. <laughs> well, the term has a long history, <clears throat> which you can trace back to Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens, if you want to, uh, where it's used to describe a particularly uh, a jingoistic um, MP. Um, but it, it basically uh, it indicates. Somebody who is rather pink in the face, uh, almost certainly male, um, and the accumulative effect of their being red in the face and angry makes them resemble um, everyone's favourite Sunday lunch. Um, so that's that's basically the origin of the term, and a lot of people have, have used it recently. Is that a good enough explanation? Well, y- yes, yes, it is. But it should be noted that it was actually invented by uh, by a, a centrist. A dreaded centrist uh, on a centrist Twitter dad. who put a funny collage of angry pink faces on Question Time and called it the Great Wall of Gammon. And it only later became a kind of an insult for, for Corbynites. Um, now, it's, it's sort of ludicrous to claim that it's a, a racist term, I think. Hmm. Um, well, what about the allegation that it's, that it's classist and that it describes um, you know, a particular kind of working class... Um, I don't think person it's with what, legitimate concerns. I don't think it's. What you, I think it's more aimed at you know, people playing golf in Surrey. To be honest, um, your, your Nigel Farage is your exactly. sort of pr- people mm. who pretend to be man of the people who are in fact stockbrokers with five million pound houses in Weybridge, kind of thing. They're those sort of people. Exactly. So it's not really classist, is it? Yeah. I think it's more. Um, I mean, it's generational. I could call it ageist, perhaps, because I think that's a big narrative in uh, current in, in politics at the moment. There's. Uh, particularly among younger Labour supporters, there is understandably a huge amount of resentment of old people, property owners, all the advantages they've had, free university education, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and this expresses itself sometimes in terms like this, which, you know, I, I think I think it's a it's a generational term of abuse rather than a classist one. I mean, this, this, there was so much hypocrisy that turned this into a kind of, in, into a fuss as opposed to some basically silly thing on Twitter, that after two years of Remainers being called Ramonas, traitors, saboteurs, enemies of the people, and of course, Romaniacs, which, let's face it, is a good word. Um, And now the right is angry about ham. Uh, And the debate actually kicked off, I say debate, uh, the pissing match kicked off with a complaint from Emma Little-Pengeli, an MP for that bastion of live and let live, the DUP. Uh, The D, of course, stands for different strokes for different folks. Is this just uh, is this sort of political correctness and snowflakeism for the right? Do, do, do 
Because they seem to basically doing what they're constantly accusing the left of doing, which is getting very, very upset by certain terms. Well, I like the way that the Daily Express, in its usual shouty way, in its headlines, accused the, the, the gammon callers of being snowflakes, thereby completely misunderstanding that the snowflake is supposed to be the person who objects to being called a name, not the name caller. So I don't think they've quite got the snowflake thing yet. Well, I kind of want to push back against this this uh, catch-22 that they try and put liberals in, which is that if you are offended by insults, then you are an oversensitive, politically great snowflake. And then if you use insults, then you are a monstrous bigot and hypocrite. So essentially, you can't do anything. Your language is, is utterly policed and that you just have to basically agree with what the Express says. I suppose from my point of view, it's always about trying to understand why it is that this appeals to people. What does it do? Because we're seeing this all over the place. It's not, this is obviously not the first instance that we've had where, you know, where, where the, the language that's been used to oppose racism, that's been used to oppose classism even and, and ageism, is being turned back on people to say, well, you've said that that was racist, so this is racist too. Um, and it seems to neglect the broader histories within which anti-racism within which uh, is located, which, you know, reducing it down to those terms of political correctness is just farcical, really, because that's really not what it's about. Well, it removes all, you know, obviously, the, you know, racism involves sort of, you know, power dynamics. And so, therefore, you know, which is why, you know, sort of honky as a different, yeah. <laughs> not very up to date here, but, you know, honky in the 60s had a different meaning to, to the N-word. It was obviously... Not, not as bad because of the, the power differential. So I think this is why some people, I think there was a UKIP MEP trying to claim that it was sort of classist because, you know, working class people were more likely to suffer from hypertension and thus have red faces because it was a search for it, to turn it into something that was punching down. And I mean, at this point, basically, I did put my head in my hands and go, this is ridiculous. We should definitely not talk about this on the podcast. Um, but I wonder whether... Um, I don't know. Is is there a problem with the with liberals, the left, Remainers using um, kind of using insults, however kind of silly, um, or is it just a thing that happens on Twitter and you know a little sort of in joke and actually has no relevance to the wider country unless tabloids and politicians suddenly want to make it a thing. I think there are two things at play here. One is the fact that it is so easy to insult people on, on, on Twitter and you can get very famous by doing so very quickly. Um, you know, the current uh, laws in this country look at things like slander and libel. And those are the things that, you know, slander is um, spoken. You rarely hear that being prosecuted anymore. Um, libel it tends, you know, it tends to be in newspapers. We're still, although Twitter people who post things on Twitter are still liable um, and can still defame people in law. It's very rare that they're prosecuted for that. And so, it's an environment in which it's possible to do this kind of insult. And it's also a necessary pressure valve because Brexit is so. I'm not going to, you know, do any indunt here and and uh, and, and start swearing. But it, it, it's it's <laughs> no no. I'll get complaints. To, people he's say, not here to befoul the air this week. I was week. listening to this with my eight year old who's very interested in Brexit. <laughs> um, no, it's um, it, it's a pressure valve because this is all so frustrating for people and people are so entrenched, understandably, on each side. Um, that this is how the tension gets diffused, and it, I don't particularly like it, and I try not to do it myself. Um, but it's it's a consequence of the political uh, climate that we're in. One point I'd like to make is, I suppose, that I don't understand the argument uh, that you definitely hear among liberals um, is that you know you, that everybody is reachable. 
that everybody is gettable and that you shouldn't alienate these people. But I think the whole point, the, the kind of the precision of the word gamut is it describes exactly it describes a political position. It does not describe people who, if you had a nice chat with them, would come round to um, remain or indeed Labour. You know, the, but this this idea sometimes I think a, a somewhat masochistic idea on the part of liberals that you know, like venturing out into into sort of Brexit land or into sort of Trump country, you know, you should you should always try and reach the people who are reachable. But I don't think you should waste your time on people like this group being described, who, are, who whose values have absolutely nothing to do with to do with yours. They are you're, are your polar opposites. Not everybody is going to sort of be reasoned with. Mm. Well, it's also an insult that evokes the 70s, evokes, you know, let's face it, gammon can be delicious, but not always. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of... That, your name is not here. That kind of <laughs> technicolour technicolor 70s cookbook, you know. It, it, a, a world which, which, again, this is part of the generational thing I was talking about before. It's, um, uh, it's really playing on notions of outdated, um, old-fashioned politics versus... Um, a new modern generation who don't want to tolerate that any longer. They want prosciutto. They want avocado on toast. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I feel bad that we talked more about this than about the UN rapporteur's comments, but I, I, I wonder whether this is the same reason that it, the story got eclipsed in the news uh, after, after a day. Um, is that the Farage Bank's wing of the Leave campaign stank of racism and xenophobia. So the news, the confirmation that racism and other forms of intolerance have become more acceptable since, it's... I mean, it's it's useful to have it confirmed, but it's not new. It is a fact that um, even when you control for other factors, uh, which include things like the fact the vote was in the summer and violence, uh, hate crime tends to go up in the summer. Even when you control for other factors, hate crime went up after the referendum. So we we know that. Yeah. So it's sort of it's one of those things where you just think, oh, well, why aren't more people talking about it? And it's like because because we knew. But isn't there a problem with the fact that the news cycle then came in and started to talk about gammons instead of focusing on the UN rapporteur? And yeah, to a certain degree, the people who knew were a particular portion of the population as well who 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 will not have found that surprising when it was reported again. Whereas the fact that then it gets bypassed into this to this other arena where we're we're, we're talking about gammon is. It's quite, you know, I'd say problematic. But <laughs> I mean, the, t- the, the timing... Or I'm perhaps, not, or perhaps was purposeful. Perhaps yeah. purposeful. I mean, I'm not very conspiratorially minded, but you do wonder whether basically when you've got this kind of pretty much unarguable uh, you know, confirmation of racism, if you can then go, ah, but what if, you know, the left are the real racists attacking pink-faced white men? I mean, there's a whole industry based on the what if liberals are the real bigots. There is. And I think we also uh, need not forget um, that, you know, certainly there are people out there who believe all of these reportings on the rise of racism, the rise of xenophobia are completely fabricated. And so and, and this is certainly the case among among uh, some some people that, that we've encountered with the research. So it's quite there is. Um, so the fact that then that, that news gets siphoned off and, and mm. co-opted for something else is... I just wonder if there's also the, the serious news, the broadcasters, the broadsheets, have this failure of nerve. Having worked in you know, a number of newsrooms, you see 
uh, oh my god, the tabloids and the Evening Standard especially are going with gammon. We've got to do gammon. We've got to do gammon. Oh yes, we've got to do gammon. And you get that sort of panic response. Uh, you know that we, you know, we can't be seen to be out of step with the common people. Mm. And you know, you're all, you can all laugh now at the idea that the tabloids <coughs> represent the common people. But that's the that's the line of thinking. It seems to me that we've got we've got to go for it. Because, and also, it's a funny. It's an unfinely. You know, Alistair Burnett would be proud of us. Yeah. So apologies for talking about that, but we did it in a in a clever meta way. So maybe we got away with it. Finally, the Electoral Commission has fined Leave.eu seventy grand for breaches of electoral law. The group's chief executive has been referred to the police over the breaches. The group was found to have exceeded its legal spending limit by at least ten percent and submitted incomplete and inaccurate returns to the Electoral Commission. For instance, it failed to produce proper invoices for more than eighty thousand pounds in payments and filed inaccurate returns regarding loans it got from the group's founder, Lovable Aaron Banks. But the Commission found no evidence that Leave.eu received donations or services from the disgraced Cambridge Analytica, despite the fact that they kept saying at the time that they had. Uh, Roz, this is your bailiwick. So you say bailiwick? I've never said that word out loud. Um, where does this leave us in the Commission's investigations into the Leave Sides campaign? Uh, well, it's not uh, at an end yet because this was an investigation into Leave.eu. Um, they are still investigating Vote Leave. Um, and um, what they're investigating there is alleged links between um, what we probably shouldn't call satellite groups like Believe, um, somebody called Darren Grimes, who was uh, given an awful lot of money uh, only about 10 days before the referendum to spend, um, and Veterans for Britain. There are a whole series, you may recall, of campaigns calling themselves X for Britain, Students for Britain, Dogs for Britain, you know, Gammon for Britain, I know. And, and um, the question is how much um, the Vote Leave used Believe, which was specifically aimed at young people, and groups like Veterans for Britain. Uh, if they did so, to um, effectively overspend by channeling money to these groups who then spent it on, on uh, making the same, putting across the same message. And the Electoral Commission is still looking at that. I recently rewatched Brewster's Millions, the Richard Pryor comedy, and Darren Grimes' situation seems to be much like that. There's a lot of money to spend in a very short time. Well, yes, there is. I mean, one of the problems, uh, one of the points the Electoral Commission has recently made is that it's currently possible to spend even more by spending it before the reporting period, i.e. the period during which if you spend it, you have to report it. If you can get some useful consulting work done way before that starts, um, then you can deploy lots more money. Um, and at the moment, that's entirely possible. Uh, the Electoral Commission actually said this week, or last week, I think last week, that it would like the um, fines to be higher for offences like this. But one of the problems is that, as we know, this is now nearly two years ago, and they got what they wanted. How's Aaron Banks responded to it? Did he take it on the chins? Um, well, he said the um, Electoral Commission was a Blairite swamp creation <laughs> uh, made up of people who couldn't get into the House of Lords. Um, he said we will see them in court. Uh, they'd gone fishing for big game or something. Sorry, gone fishing for big fish. And uh, they'd only found sardines, etc., etc. So he denies it, basically. Um, he says this is small beer. Forget about it. Move well, on. Well, it is small beer. That's the problem with a fine like this. If, if you're dealing with somebody who is basically... Uh, a thug who's bought his way into political influence, then you're going to have to find him a lot more than that. I mean, yeah. the one thing that everyone knows about him, well, the, the second thing everyone knows about him, is that he's got loads of money. 
Yeah, and you're going to have to find a way of actually looking at election spending during the, or referendum spending during the campaign itself, which obviously, you know, there was very little knowledge during the campaign itself of what, of what was going on, and it's only since emerged. One of the things um, that is being mooted at the moment, uh, and which Facebook is going to do, is to make it possible for you to look at who is spending what on um, election advertising, political advertising, who they're directing it to in basically in real time. So it may lead to sort of reforms in future, but am I right in thinking that it basically makes no difference to the referendum, that this kind of fantasy that I still occasionally see, that, that somehow the referendum result can be undone, no. I mean, that's never going to happen. None, right? none at all, because what has this done? You know, it, they, they can always argue, well, we, our message reached people and it was good enough to persuade them. And as far as they're concerned, that's case closed. Brilliant. <laughs> now let's talk some more with Dr. Mikola Benson, who leads the Brexpats Research Project. Mikola, before you and your fellow researchers started looking into this, how much was known for sure about you know, how many Brits were living in EU27, their ages, what they were doing, how long they'd been there? Um, and most, I mean, there is, of course, the stereotypical pensioner on the Costa del Sol, but obviously that's not, that's not the full picture. And so how much was known and were there any surprises when you actually did the fieldwork? OK, so I suppose I should put this into some context. Um, the team for the project, uh, which we've rebranded as Brexit Brits Abroad, following some concerns over the the titling of that. Oh, around sorry, the OK. Brexit, <laughs> Brexit is fine. Officially, it's called Brexpats. Um the team is, you know, the core team is is me and Professor Karen O'Reilly. Between us, we have 40 years of experience with working with British populations in France and Spain. And I, uh, so so for us, there weren't really that many surprises. <laughs> right, yeah, because, yeah. I hope not. Because, of course, we, 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 we've been doing that work on the ground in those places, in Karen's case, since the mid-1990s, in my case, since the early 2000s. So we weren't that surprised. We were also not surprised with the misrepresentations of British populations living in the EU 27 that we continue to be bombarded with via social media and through the comments sections on almost anything that we do. In terms of statistics, now this is a really touchy subject for us at the moment, as it is for most British citizens who live in the EU 27. Um, what we've seen since uh, the referendum is what Karen is describing as the disappearing Brits abroad. Um, there have been a whole raft of official statistics which have been released, most recently by the Office for National Statistics, um, who, which, which just seem to reduce the numbers time and time and time again. And we've been trying to unpick why it is, what is behind the uh, methodologies that they're using and that and means being that they can off. do that. Um, <laughs> have, you have you uncovered a plot? So the latest statistics deliberately excluded British populations who live in Ireland for a host of reasons um, that include things like the fact that Britain and Ireland are in, have a common travel area and so freedom of movement between Britain and Ireland preceded the European Union and there is a commitment... I don't know how firm that commitment is to that continuing. Um, so they knocked them out. So, so we've gone from before the referendum believing that there was somewhere in the region of 2 million UK citizens living in the EU27, notably UK citizens who only hold British nationality. So all dual nationals are out. Um, that was then dropped post-referendum to 1.2 million, which was drawn from census data from around 2011 across the European Union. Now, anyone who works in statistics knows that 
There are issues around the comparability of censuses between different countries in terms of how their data is collected and all of these types of things. Um, and then it, they realised that they'd been circulating this figure of 1.2 million, and that 1.2 million was of people who were born in Britain, so people who weren't necessarily British citizens as well or, or didn't have that as their primary thing. They dropped it to 900,000, and then uh, the week, a few weeks ago, sometime mid-April, they dropped that to 700 and something really bizarre, like 784,000. Now... Sorry, that doesn't really help because we don't believe that those statistics are really reflective of uh, the numbers of UK citizens living in the EU27. And this will vary by country because, you know, in some cases we have quite accurate registration data, for example. Some places like Germany, like the Netherlands, you know, there is a compulsory registration when you arrive. In other places like France, well, if you can find a registration system, please do let me know because in 15 years I haven't found one. Um, so, in and, and there might also be reasons why people don't register. So in Spain, where there is a registration system, we also know that some of the municipalities estimate that two out of three people don't register. So, so it's really, really difficult to enumerate people travel backwards and forwards. There are always going to be people who fall between the gaps. And the official statistics, along with excluding anyone who has nationality of another uh, nation state, also exclude people who haven't been there for 12 months. Um, so there are all sorts of problems with actually getting to grips with how many British people there are uh, living abroad. Among my friendship group, I think probably DJs who live in Berlin are somewhat overrepresented. Um, apart from Berlin-based DJs, where where are the biggest uh, sort of communities of expats? So, so that becomes quite complicated because we could talk about absolute numbers in each of the different places. There are obviously some really well-known destinations, Berlin being one of them, and you'll probably be interested to know that despite our image of Berlin as, affecting, as attracting all of these cultural and creative industry types, that actually it's actually swayed much more towards professionals than it is towards uh, the cultural and creative industries. Um, that certainly in recent years has become somewhere um, that people would think of. Um, in terms of surprises, I would say, things that people might be surprised to learn, um, the British in Ireland are one of, if not the largest, British popula uh, migrant population in Ireland. And yet we very, very rarely hear about that. And there are lots of reasons why we don't hear about that. Um, so that's probably something that's quite surprising to people. There are, of course, big populations in somewhere like Spain, which actively sought to attract people to invest in property mm. on its coastline. So we do have those. But the important thing about Spain is Spain is not just pensioners. Um, although it is swayed towards that, so I think they have one of the highest percentages of these terrible statistics. The terrible statistics show that among that, demo uh, among that population of British people, there is a reasonably high relative to other countries percentage who are pensioners. It's somewhere around 30%. Um, you know, that does still leave 70% of people who are of working age and under. And when we look across the EU, we know that nearly 80% of UK citizens who live in the EU are working age and under. Um, and some people will say to me, oh, well, you know, oh, it's all those early retirees. No, it's not. There are still something like 19% of those people are children for a start. So, so you know, there, there's it becomes quite 
complicated and there are a variety of reasons why people are moving. We should also not forget the dual national families. There are lots of British people who are married to Europeans um, who have made decisions within their family units to go and live in these places, in, in other places outside of the UK. So you found in your most recent uh, report that, uh, rather as in Britain, many EU countries have yet to really start planning what on earth they're going to do about their resident Brits. What do you think might go wrong for these resident Brits if nothing gets done? So I think that there are a variety of possibilities. And I think that the thing that concerns me most is the people who are quite vulnerably positioned. And when I say that, the obvious one that people think about is is elderly people but i think that to a certain degree we we know quite a lot about that and that you know if the uk government is focusing on anything in relation to uk citizen populations abroad it does focus on its pensioners when we have a look at parliamentary proceedings they do talk about pensioners abroad relative to other british populations abroad i should say the coverage is still not it's still not very very extensive but i'm personally concerned about vulnerable populations that might include Young people, so young people who might be living in countries where levels of unemployment are really high, who may be very, very highly qualified, who may have been brought up in those places, and yet, for whatever reason, are in a position where they don't meet the requirements for settlement in those places. Um, And until now, that probably hasn't come to light, because, you know, we know that well, I don't know whether we do know this, but, but I'm pretty certain that there are not very high cases of UK citizens being put into detention and deported from those EU countries. Um, so that might be one example. People who are homeless. We shouldn't discount the possibility that there might be homeless Britons living on the continent. Um, also, probably... Um, it's worth thinking about the people who have used a very, very common sense understanding of freedom of movement to actually believe that that's about movement and so have moved very frequently. So perhaps chasing work, perhaps chasing relationships, perhaps chasing all sorts of opportunities and moving around for, you know, every few months or, or, or so because then they won't necessarily have the, the terms of residence that are required in order to be considered settled in those places. And this is a an obvious, possibly even a stupid question. Um, but you talked here about the way that, you know, every country has its own kind of registration system. Um, or not. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of kind of reaching a solution, uh, you know, for the, for these kind of British citizens' futures, um, would that be something that was, was sort of agreed across the EU or would they be at the mercy of every individual country's policy? Well, I think that this is where I have to be fair to kind of EU, um, you know, other uh, home offices and ministries and municipalities. At the moment, that still seems to be reasonably unclear. It's not clear whether that would be a whole of EU solution or whether that would be put down to individual nation states to implement. And that question earlier about, you know, whether whether we have a kind of an EEA style or, or otherwise will will influence that as well ultimately. Um, at the moment what what we know is that across the EU all countries have a system of permanent residence. Um, they all have a system of residence permits, um, but they are all slightly, you know, the procedures for bringing them about are slightly different. Um, so, yeah, so, so it's slightly unclear, I would say. Clear as mud, perhaps. There is a suggestion, isn't there, that um, some countries may want 
um, want British citizens living there to naturalise, to take on their the uh, citizenship of the country they're living in, in order to continue to receive free things they may well need and want, like right to a pension, you know, benefits, that kind of thing, um, or indeed just the right to carry on living there. Um, if if that happens, there are some countries, aren't there, which don't allow dual citizenship. So that means that in those countries, I think Lithuania is one of them because it wants to discourage uh, joint citizenship with, with Russia, I believe. But um, there are some... Uh, in those countries, Britons will have to choose whether they abandon their British citizenship or go for the new one. And a lot of them are unhappy about that. Yeah, so I'm not sure that there's any country that I know of that's actively encouraging UK citizens to apply for citizenship of those countries. But what we do know is in countries where it's possible, those applications are on the increase. Um, And so there's been a huge rise in applications in France, for example. Ireland has always been an outlier because there have always been huge numbers of applications for British citizens to become, um, to also have Irish citizenship. Um, it is a concern. I mean, obviously, some some people believe that that's the solution for these people. Well, if you've gone and lived there, then then you should become a citizen of that place. But <laughs> it it isn't possible everywhere. First of all, and you you know, in some places like Spain, for example, the expectation is that you would you know give up your British citizenship in order to become Spanish because there are only particular populations who are actually allowed to have dual nationality. Um, And I think it also points to quite strong questions of identity as well. Um, Some people simply don't feel that, you know, that that is something that they want to be doing. Um, Needless to say, something that 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 they they should have to do in order to to um, stay in the places that they live. So it's quite a complicated landscape. Well, it's so complicated and uncertain. And like you said, there's all these these moving parts. so there's only so much information that they can be given by the EU mm. or by Britain. Um, presumably you've, you found that, you know, people are fairly frustrated with that. Do you think that there's more, despite this uncertainty, that Britain and the rest of the EU could be doing to explain the situation or explain the possibilities? Or is it just sort of, is it just sort of too, too tangled that there's not, there's not enough sort of certainty to inform people? So that's quite, that is quite a big question. And I just want to go back to something I said before when I was talking about the representation of UK citizens in UK Parliament, UK citizens who live overseas in Parliament. The UK government historically has been terrible at either being terribly concerned about their populations who live abroad or in actually doing anything that is in their interest. And this is across the board. It's not one part. It's not one party over the other. So um, I'm sure that some people are aware. UK citizens who live overseas lose the right to vote in the UK after 15 years overseas. And actually, what's likely to happen in this situation with Brexit is that they, you know, it's not just that they're going to lose their citizens' rights, so their, their freedom of movement. With that, they will also lose their right, probably. I say probably because, again, you know, we don't mm. really know, to vote in local elections and in European elections. So they become completely politically disenfranchised. And I think that that is one wow. of the things that is prompting people to apply for citizenship in the places that they live. Because actually the idea of not being able to vote for anything, anywhere, is quite upsetting. It's like being sort of booted out of democracy, isn't so, it? So, yes, and I think that, you know, we are seeing a repoliticization of these British populations living abroad. That's that's abundantly clear. And I know that you've had, I think you've had some of the Remain groups in to talk about, uh, about that. But um, 
it is quite it's quite remarkable so when we go and we look at these transcripts from the Hansard reports where British populations overseas have been discussed, normally in the overseas votes, it's absolutely littered with misunderstanding on both sides, you know, um, pro, you know, so anyone who's pro the overseas vote or against the overseas vote, the misunderstandings are rife. So, you know, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't give representation to people who don't pay tax. Well, a lot of British citizens who live overseas, including pensioners who might receive local government pensions, for example, are actually paying tax in the UK. So let's just get rid of that one. Um, the numbers, you know, for the, for, you know, they, 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 they trade on this idea that, you know, these people who've given so much for the country. So they talk about pensioners a lot, very old people who've, you know, fought in the war or, you know, something. So it's quite, it's not, it doesn't help the debate, I think is what I'm trying to say, that those misunderstandings are there. And that 80% of people who are, you know, of working age and below, rarely get a look in there and I think that really given the extent of the British diaspora and I should say anyone anyone out there listening who thinks well it can't be that many people it's one of the biggest in the world per in, in respect to its population so it is really remarkable that that representation isn't there so one of the bigwigs in the Brexit talks, I think it was Giva Hofstad, the Europe European Parliament's representative, at one point was floating this idea of offering continuing EU t citizenship to any Brits who want it, which is, you know, quite a, a controversial thing to offer. Could that fly? Or how about uh, looking at just the people you look at and offering EU citizenship to any Brits who are already settled in, into a, an EU27 country? Presumably that would solve the problem, but is it possible? It would, it would solve some of the problems. It would solve some of the issues that people are concerned about. Um, is it possible? Now, I believe that there is a court case going through that is about the, the continuation of people's rights and the question of whether those rights can be removed from them. Um, so whether once you've had EU citizenship, you're allowed to keep it um, or, or not. And that is going through. It, it's going through, I think... Where's it been elevated up to? It had gone to court in the Netherlands and it's been passed on to well, European level. It would be, it strikes me, apart from the fact of making a point about Brexit, it would be a good way for the EU to try to undermine anybody who threatens Chexit or Italexit or Frexit or whatever in the future. Stop to, saying these words, Peter. Uh, sorry, uh, they're terrible words. Ideas. I, think. <laughs> but, uh, I think they've got the idea already, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it would be a way of saying, well, you know, we've given your citizens the right to completely subvert you. They, if they all choose to, you know, if, if a lot of them choose to be EU citizens, it kind of makes it harder to say we've cut off our links with the EU. What else can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm mad ideas, yes. Thanks, Michaela. And we're coming to the end of the show, which means it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule, where we say something for the future that we're going to miss or something we're going to need if we leave the EU. Ros, it's your turn. It what is. would you like to put in the Brexit time capsule? Well, I've brought it with me, actually. I know you can't see it because this is a podcast, but you can actually check it out on my Twitter feed if you want to. It's a Girl Guides badge, which I earned circa... 1986, I would say. And it's the Girl Guides Europe badge. Ooh, you, proper EU merch. It's proper EU merch. I don't know. I don't think many of these exist. I bet they don't. I mean, you can imagine what a nerdy 11-year-old I was. I actually wanted and volunteered to do this to do this badge. Yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of 11-year-old I was. Anyway, I dropped out of guides the following year due to some, you know, profound disagreement with serving God. But anyway, um, so the interesting thing, there are lots of interesting things about this for me. It's quite... But... Um, you can see, uh, if you if you check it out, that it's not got blue stars in it. 
which is the usual EU symbol, it's got an arrangement of eight red and yellow alternating links. And that might strike you as a bit odd uh, as an EU symbol, but it's because until about 1986, basically the EU didn't have a commonly agreed symbol that everyone could agree on, partly because of Eurosceptics in the UK not wanting one, because, you know, that would that would mean federalism. And, blah, blah. Um, and so they obviously just, you know, stuck something on which seemed to suggest unity, and especially unity when there were only eight members, <laughs> whatever point that was. Um, but um, for me, it's kind of, it's it's a sort of sad symbol um, of of the hope that existed for what was then the European community. Of course, it wasn't the EU back then. Um, and the fact that it would now be absolutely impossible for the girl guides or cubs or anything like that to have a Europe badge. I mean, can you imagine what the Daily Mail would say? Can you, they, imagine, the, can you imagine the outrage? The, yeah. the gammon uproar. Yeah. <laughs> the total up brain Brussels brainwashing. <laughs> brainwashing our young people. And yeah, you know, that was okay. And I, I don't know why they discontinued it, but I can think of a couple of good reasons. Probably one, not many people took it. And also probably it was gradually seen to be... Um, you know, increasingly politically unacceptable, but I don't know when it was phased out. And it's quite, it might be a fun project if I ever have the time to actually look up and see if I can get into the Girl Guides archives and find out a bit more about these, because I can't remember exactly what I had to do to earn it. I think I had to do a kind of fold out sort of display, you set, know. Set a test on the CAP. Yeah, probably explain <laughs> what the single market was or something. And uh, yeah. Um, work, work, work out a customs arrangement in the event of leaving the EU that would uh, avoid a hard border in Ireland. Yeah. If only you could find that thing, we could solve it all. Yeah, had I only known. I mean, back then, uh, well, you know, thank God I didn't. But um, So that's my contribution. Thanks, Rose. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Michaela Benson. Um, what are you up to next? Are you... Are you off travelling, doing fieldwork? Goodness, we've got a big event on Monday that's uh, with our with another project called the Yuri Children and Yuri Families, um, and the project's all about this. The project, the event at the British Library, is all about this move from um, being mobile citizens to potentially being migrants. Um, so we've got six or seven panel speakers so I'm prepping up for that at the moment but um, I think that's going to be quite quite interesting and relocating this discussion about hmm. uh, UK citizens in the EU and EU nationals in the UK back into a broader conversation about migration in Britain today That sounds great. Thanks also to Ros and Peter. We'll see you next time For our European language clip this week we have Alastair Campbell uh, giving us some German Wir müssen Wir müssen alles tun, diesen harten Brexit zu stoppen. Now this week's Roll Call of Patreon backers has gone astray, so as we play out with Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, feel free to shout out your own name at home. See you next week. Maniacs was presented by me, Dorian Linsky, with Peter Collins and Roz Taylor. Studio production was by Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.